Welcome to Architecture Insights, a podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. My name is Di Snape and I'm here in the Purple Podcast booth with my co-host and our very own registrar, Tim Horton. Hi Di and yes, welcome to Architecture Insights. In this series of episodes of Architecture Insights, we're going to hear from architects whose careers have benefited from an extraordinary gift. They have all been the recipients of a very influential but little known Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship which is Australia's richest annual bequest for architecture. Tim, we've talked a couple of times about Byra and these scholarships. He decided in 1938 to make this bequest for a travelling scholarship fund, the first of which was awarded in 1951. Mm. What was the intent originally of this extraordinary and generous gift? So Byra had been born in England, travelled to Australia, and his ambition as an educator was to allow students, graduates, architects to travel, research and return to learn and share. You know, great ambition. Right, so for the benefit of the profession as much as for the individual. Yeah, I think he came maybe from the UK and saw a, an emerging or an emergent profession here. How does he grow it, support it, promote it? So since 1951, there have been 202 recipients mm. and spreading the word, we hope. And we've asked a couple of those people to tell us about their Byra Hadley experience and give us their rich and interesting and diverse stories. In this episode, we're going to hear from Matt Chan uh, of Scale Architecture. And he's our host for the series, producer and curator Jan Ryan, herself a philanthropist, speaking to Matt Chan from Scale Architecture and a, a two-time Byra Hadley uh, alumni, actually, first in 2001 and then again in 2011. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Jan. Very nice to be here. And you've come by bike. I have, indeed. Yes. How was that trip? It was reasonable. So I, t I took the Kent Street Cycleway across town. Um, from Darlinghurst, so down Oxford Street and across town. Um, the bike paths do need a lot of improving in Sydney still. Yeah. Uh, I think we've still got a bit of a way to go. And what do we need to improve our attitude or...? <laughs> we just need more of them to start with. The attitude's got a long way to go. Well, we're going to get there. Um, you've had two Byra Hadley scholarships uh, way back in 2001 mm -hmm. with the very catchy headline, Green Heart with a Hot Red Centre. And in there you talked about the second modernity, our world of excessive information and excessive space. What was that about? Well, look, that was 15 years ago. And I think 15 years ago you didn't really see everyone walking around with their heads buried in an iPhone um, I used to look forward to receiving emails and now I absolutely dread it. So it's, it's interesting. In 2001, just 4.8% of the world's population used the internet and now that's uh, increased to 48%. So a tenfold increase in the use of internet in the 10 years. You know, in 2001, the idea of the internet was, as, a, as a concept was really fascinating. We hadn't quite reached this idea of social media ruling everything yet. Um, so to study that was, was still fascinating. Now it's just commonplace. You also looked at what you call non-places. Yeah, that's right. Non-places are, are places like airport lounges, uh, highway intersections and shopping malls, um, places where many things come together but leave giant big holes in the urban fabric. 
we're seeing that as much in the physical space, uh, more more than ever before. Absolutely. As information expands. Information, but also I think this this kind of um, flux of non-places, which is still a phenomenon that's relevant today. So in 2011, you went off to London on your second Byra Hadley scholarship. What were you researching then? Look, 10 years later, I found myself in London um, looking to fill some of these holes that are left, really. So I think the first Byra was about identifying how those holes result um, the, the second buyer was really to go back and, and to find the spaces that get, that get left out as the city is being rolled out. And what did you find? So in London, I suppose, it's, it's often seen as a, a snapshot of the future and because it's such a vibrant and intense place with such a large population with so many diverse cultures coming together in one centralised location, um, things like the complete over-surveillance of public space is already completely um, rife. Mm. Um, Sydney is very close behind that and it's these cities that have um, a kind of authoritarian control over public space which become quite topical. And in those places or in those spaces there's the surveillance of London. What happens to the idea of a sense of place in that context? I think that's really interesting. Um, I guess the, the question that I had going to London was how can we make those spaces more democratic, more equitable? Uh, how can we use public space without, again, feeling like we have to pay for it every time we go into it? Does it worry us that we're being looked at? I think it's a major concern going into the future. And what, as an architect, do you what, what elements do you think of there when you think of buildings and spaces? Are you making places where we can shelter from being um, looked at, or does that become um, a part of how you brief people to inhabit a place to be aware that they're going to be looked at? Look, I, I think it's a um, a done deal in many okay. respects. I think the the future of data collection and how cities use information to control space is is far beyond what we already perceive to be reasonable. And we didn't even know it was happening? I don't think so. It, it bothers me as an architect, I think, more than anything else. Why does it bother you? In many respects, architecture should be about freedom and creating f- uh, a space for people to inhabit, um, particularly in the urban realm. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I, I really like that idea of a sense of freedom um, and that, that being an architect's job. When you've got a city that is increasingly privatised and owned by a corporation, it's increasingly difficult to find spaces that are not owned by a corporation to inhabit. Take Barangaroo, for instance. Absolutely everything has been controlled there, from the design of the public domain to the procurement process to the, I guess, the single developer mode mm. of being procured. Mm. Um, What is left for the city and what is left for the people? Sure, we have a little piazza and a strip that runs across the the foreshore, but is that a real place? Is that the kind of uh, city environment that we actually want in the city? Someone wants it. I think the big end of town wants it, but I'm not sure that this is going to be sustainable practice over the next little while. Yeah. So in London, did you see this 
did you examine the way in which corporations are privatising spaces? Could you see that play, play out a little ahead of where we are in Sydney? I think London's a little different. Um, for instance, 15 years ago, when I went to the opening of the Tate Modern, we had to walk across a gravel car park to get there. Um, and now South London is incredible in its development. There's the Shard, um, there's the, the London Town Hall, the entire South Bank is a Norman Foster-designed public space. Um, and right outside the front of the Tate Modern is a community garden that you would never know existed if it weren't for the fact of visiting it. Mm. So things like that, small interventions which keep the community interests alive are still present right in the middle of the city, whereas I think in Sydney those community interests are being bought over by corporations mm. much faster. So the architect's job is to raise awareness, to build that into plans. It, when you're working with a corporation who's designing these buildings or these spaces, you will be part of that job. You, you want to be part of that job because then you can bring that advocacy to the space? I, I think the advocacy has to be fought from from the advocacy side. I don't Outside of? Outside of the really? corporation. Yeah. I think you need, you need a necessary form of resistance that works from the outside. I've, I've heard a lot of um, discussion about working from the inside out, but I think once you have the corporate interest in mind, you can only be working for corporations. And, and look, this is, this is really a concern of mine about architecture and its current state. I think architecture is in an incredibly vulnerable position, particularly now in a, in a kind of late capitalist society. We are increasingly at risk of being slave to capital. I think our responsibility should extend far great, greater than that. So, Matt, how do we do that? Because if you're not in the tent, uh, your voice could be uh, seen as objection rather than uh, something a voice that people might uh, use to make change, put the little garden in. There's an imbalance of power. I'm just wondering why you think you need to be outside the tent. Look, I think there's such a dominant ideology of, of late capitalism at the moment that there is no alternative modes of operation for us in this profession, particularly when it comes to larger city-making projects. I think in the smaller projects, there's still mm. some scope for doing things. But I think the architect's role as a facilitator is one that is increasingly more important. But you need power, don't you think? You might, in a way, I can see what you're doing. You're raising awareness, but then you need the power to bring that awareness to action. You need power and you need a political alignment. So where does the architect fit in there if you've already cut yourself out of being part of the development process as such? I, I think it's really on the advocacy side and on the, um, on the shit-disturbing side. Shit-disturbing, make a lot of noise. Absolutely. Yeah, and what's the, well, you know, let's go back to where you were talking about excess information um, that came out of your first Byra Hadley, and it kind of works into your second one as well because they're, they're kind of pairs. <laughs> they're a pair of, of ideas. Mm. Um, with this excess information, what can the advocate architect do if it's just kind of throwing information out? Does there need to be a, another way of bringing the information um, into, into action, so that getting attention from people so they listen to your words, they listen to the space, they don't sort of let it wash over them? Look, to give you an example of how that works, um, we had a tiny project in Seaforth to design the Stephanie Alexander uh, Seaforth Kitchen Garden. Mm. Um, it's 
In terms of architecture, there is there is very little grand gesture within that design. But um, my role was really to speak with the community, um, to speak with the kitchen garden people and to speak to the parents um, and to act as a facilitator between all of those parties and actually there are multiple stakeholders involved in what is a very complex little organisation. What it means in the end is that the children have a space to learn to grow their own food, to prepare their own vegetables. They bring the community together by having the parents come and grow vegetables on the weekends and it's just a wonderful little community initiative and it's a it's an incredibly small role for a conventional architect uh, but an incredibly important one. Which raises the question of what an architect does of course because traditionally we think uh, you know as one would think of the city of London you think of it as architecture you think an architect makes the building that's changing you're talking about people being the centre of architecture. What architects do is is incredibly broad. I think on one level, yes, we do do buildings, and my practice does buildings as well. But on another level, um, you know, to form the necessary um, to form the necessary views towards social responsibility, you've got to take a step back and talk to the people again, and not just be involved with building and and commissions and corporations. Is that the way we develop place and take away the idea of a non-place? Traditionally, I don't think it is. Traditionally, I think we had formal public spaces which were owned by the city, piazzas and squares outside of churches, uh, large places where people could congregate, markets and so on. But these were things which were owned by the city. And now what we're seeing is those spaces being gobbled up by corporations. Ah, okay. So the city's getting lost, you know. It's shifting to capital rather than public service. That's right. Yeah. So in a way, your role as the advocate is to inject public service? To fight for it. To get the spirit and reinvent it, bring it to life? But that has to come through, I think, a larger movement from from the people. Well, we've lost that in many um, professions, that Mm. sense of public service. People are paid to do things and then owned by the thing they're paid for. And that's what you're saying is happening to um, architects or architecture as a profession. So what would – is the community garden the first step to to bringing back public service, to reinventing it? Look, I think it's one small example of of how things can be done. I think – on the other hand, it has to happen at a much broader scale than that. What was a, a really interesting moment of public service, for want of a better description, in London when you were there? What thing did you see that kind of gave you the greatest hope about um, public service in a city? Okay, so for me, the single most transformative aspect was the bikes. And it's the Boris bikes. I know we're not supposed to speak about Boris <laughs> post-Brexit, but anyway. But he did ride a bike. It, it, look, it totally changes the way you navigate the city. Um, whereas before, 10 years ago, you'd be stuck underground navigating via the tube and a little map and not really having a sense of the place. But now um, I think you use landmarks, things like the river and the topography to navigate a city. So it changes the idea of place The other massive transforming thing for me in London was the introduction of the congestion tax. So basically, um, it's increased the number of pedestrians in the city centre by an incredible amount. It's now a place that is for people and not for cars. 
Um, and in a, in a city like London where the scale is so tight and so dense, it's incredibly important that people have ownership of the streets. What's some steps for bringing that back to Sydney? I think that's actually the hardest question, Jan. Is it? <laughs> it is, absolutely. But isn't that the question you're trying to answer? It is. So, look, I think it's wonderful to be able to go out in the world and make observations. To then bring them back, to apply those things is the hardest thing. Yeah. And I mean that in the most productive way. Yeah. I mean that we have to actually struggle for what we believe in and to make that part of our practice of what we do every day. So, for instance, seeing how far the City of London is ahead in, say, sustainability, um, the fact that sustainability and climate change is a bipartisan uh, decision on action, whereas here it's still something that's stuck between two parties. It's still something that we don't have consensus on, despite the science. So I think it's a, we require a shift in attitude. How do you think we can shift that attitude, though? Is it an architect's job uh, in the modern world to help us, firstly, identify that as a problem and then go about solving it? Look, I, I think when you start an architecture degree, you go in with the brightest eyes and the, the biggest sense of social responsibility. By the time you finish, that starts to diminish somewhat. By the time you've started working... It, you, you sort of look around thinking, where has that gone? And I think, I think we need a renewed sense of social responsibility. But how do we do that, Matt? It's Are you going to lead the charge? What do you think we should do? Is it in the courses? Is it back in the architecture courses that we um, think in terms of public service, the greater good? Um, or is it something else that we need to do Look, from your experience? Some, there's some great things happening um, at the moment. And I'm not sure if you've heard of the Nightingale development in Melbourne. Mm. But it's an architect-led development and it's based on a triple bottom line development being sustainable, affordable and a social place. More importantly, it's a place to live rather than a, a place to invest in. Um, so Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture yeah. is leading the charge. In They're that doing sense. incredible work. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's re that, that to me is an example of bottom-up activism in architecture. And I'm very happy to announce that <laughs> I'm very happy to say that I'm the first um, Sydney investor that's bought into Andrew Maynard's Nightingale 3. Right. Okay. So you need to form new relationships, I think, with, with developers and each other. So the practical way, rather than the big way of how do we solve public service, yep. the practical way is to sort of go in there and start doing it as such. And as an architect, you can do it with developers, yep. new financiers, yes. and form new teams. Yes. And you've got to identify those people for the teams. Exactly. So that's certainly one way. So bottom-up, kind of getting out there. You know, we don't like the way real estate is, is determining the conversation. So let's take charge of the conversation ourselves and make development happen the, on our terms quickly. I suppose what you've got to do is form relationships with banks and people are going to give you money so that you can afford to buy stuff. You know, it's, it's just structuring the deal. At the same time, we've got to avoid the big four as well. One of the things that Jeremy's been talking about is avoiding having any relation whatsoever with fossil fuel investing companies. Yeah, okay. So That's the, hard in the construction industry. It certainly <laughs> is. What uh, role do you imagine architecture playing in the next 20 years in Sydney, for example? Look, hopefully a much bigger role than it is now. Um, working across all scales from small urban interventions uh, right up to policy making and, and affecting change at a much, much bigger scale. 
And Nightingale, or the example of that model, uh, is a way to go forward. It, it's an example of that. It's a small start, but, but it's a start. Look, Matt, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us, Jan. Jan Ryan with Matt Chan from Scale Architecture, recipient of two Byra Hadley scholarships in 2001 and 2011, who has an interesting position on shit-stirring. We wanted to bring Jan in. Jan, you join us at the Purple Table. Thanks for coming in. You're uh, a philanthropist. Pleasure. I am. I am. I am. And it's the amazing, best thing I've ever done in my life. I, I co-found and lead a group which I call a disruptive philanthropy startup. Uh, it's called the Creative Music Fund. And we've created a brand called the Creative Music Fund. Uh, and people come and uh, take part in the brand. So it's a sort of crowdfunded thing, $1,000 entry. But um, at the moment, we've partnered with the Sydney Opera House on a major project. So the goal is to, to take big projects across Australia. Mm. Um, worked with the ACO, Bangara, now the Sydney Opera House. So, uh, I, I, look, it's really powerful. You can Together we can make dreams come true. And philanthropy is part of this, right? And so the gift, the idea of gift and legacy, traditionally we're seeing single big donor. Uh, traditionally, you know, we're used to it in the fine and visual arts, but I guess we're beginning to see this in in music and in design, and so we're looking at what impact philanthropy can have. Yes, and we're giving everybody a chance. In the past, it used to be the idea of the patron, mm. and the patron had kind of had rights, uh, access to boards and uh, positions of power, but. The Creative Music Fund and, and, and what I believe in is that we all have a right to participate in public projects. We all have a right to ma- have a say in what culture we make. So that could be the amazing project called Dance Rights we're doing on a national level with the Sydney Opera House, which we've seed funded. It could be a piece of architecture. It could be a piece of music. It could be a piece of poetry. Honestly, it's really only in the way that you think. Uh, So all doors open, I believe, if we come together and work together Mm. uh, as a community on major projects. Yes, together dreams come true. (laughs) And we're interested, Architecture Insights is exploring the role of the architect and of architecture in a more participatory world. And so what we're seeing through projects like yours are models that we can reach for that show us we can all contribute in uh, some way. Mo- most definitely, and you've got to believe in the goal and the idea. Um, really, I'd like, in a way, my next project to be a piece of architecture or a placemaking, some way of th- thinking in a broader sense about storytelling and architecture and making new cities and making new spaces and that we can participate and learn together. And together, you know, it's very, very powerful because you feel as if, for the first time ever, I think, we the people feel as if we can have a role in producing and making who we are. Do you get a sense that this is a theme that's emerging from some of the interviews you've done with us, for us, in the Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarships? It's right on message, and I wouldn't have thought it before I started, but everybody's talking about storytelling, everybody's talking about making public spaces, everybody's talking about community. Now, they're big words, uh, but we have to break it down to making it so that we feel we can participate, that the door's not shut, the door is open. This is really, really important. And I feel everybody, like... Everybody has been talking about this at the core of their topic and their idea. It's about, it's over, you know, the old world is over, it's up to us to make it, and we are. One of the things the board does is to register architects, but we also inform the public, we protect the consumer, and we promote architecture. Part of that seems to be the storytelling. So, it's the absolute core. Thanks, Jan.
Thank you. And you can hear more from other Byra scholars on our podcast series in the coming weeks. Jan will be speaking with Hannah Tribe of Tribe Studio, Imogene Tudor from Sam Crawford Architects, Dr Deborah Deering, the North District Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission, and Ben Peake from Carter Williamson Architects. You've been listening to Architecture Insights, brought to you by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board, and I'm Di Snape. <laughs>